Hey, one more time. Good morning. My name's Ben. I'm so glad that you are here. You know, Mother's Day is today. And Mother's Day is one of those interesting holidays where I don't often know what to say to people. So like at Christmas, I say Merry Christmas. And you say back to me, Merry Christmas. All right. All right. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. If I say Happy Mother's Day, what are you going to say to me? Yeah, yeah, you say, thanks, I guess, I don't know, I don't know what you say. Hey, uh, what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to do our second installment of our Better Together message series, and I want to talk to you about our value for next steps around here, and why we have a tool that we can do that, but more importantly, what's going on underneath the surface. But before we do that, I want to acknowledge something in the room, I want us to take a moment and just pray. All right, so all around our country today, we are celebrating mothers, in fact, uh, we're celebrating women in general around here. And we think that women are one of God's greatest gifts. I know I personally believe that. I think most of the men in the room do, and a lot of the ladies as well. We think women are phenomenal. But on Mother's Day, a lot of things can be going on in your head. And I just want to acknowledge that. We have some moms here today that are celebrating because they get to be with their kids, and they're enjoying that kind of focus uh, on them and the appreciation that comes from all the work that they do. We have some ladies in the room that would like to be moms and haven't been able to be moms and they're trying and so today raises a certain level of concern for them and a little angst and we want to be sensitive to that. We have people who have had children and lost them in the room today and so today creates an extra feeling of loss. They're more aware of that than maybe they were in the weeks before and we have some folks in the room who have lost their moms. Now, around here, we try to be mature when it comes to these kinds of things where there are a variety of experiences represented. We want to both, and here's the challenge, we want to be able to both celebrate those that are celebrating and celebrate with them and to come alongside those that are in need of extra care. And mature people can walk both of those rails and do both of those things quite well. So here's what I'd like for us to do as just a community here. I'd like for us to just bow our heads and let me offer up a prayer for the ladies in the room today. Would that be all right? Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that thousands and thousands of years ago, you said it was good for man, it was not good for man to be alone, and you created women. They were your design, they were your gift to this world, to all of us, and we just want to say thank you. Lord, I thank you for the moms in the room today that get to celebrate the fact that you gave them a child, and they were able to invest and are investing in them. Today we focus our attention on them and just say thank you for their effort. Thank you, God, for the gift that they are to their families. We also want to pray for the ladies in the room that are hurting today because they have sought a child, wanted a child, and and it just didn't happen. God, we ask for your peace to be with them today. We pray for each person in this room, Lord, who has lost a mom. She's already gone on. And today, while there may be celebration in some pockets, there's also a sense of loss. We ask for your peace to be there and present as well. And God, what we ask most of all is that your son Jesus would be glorified today in this place as we talk through your word about some some things that were very, very, very important to you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you for letting me do that, and today I hope that you're celebrating. In our family, um, here's how it's working today. Um, Jill has not told us what we're doing yet, but the rule for the kids was whatever mom says, that's what we're doing. And so I walked away from that saying, how is that different than any other day (laughs) that we live? So anyway, hey, today I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question, and it's a question that the first century Christians did not have to struggle with. 
I want to take us back a couple thousand years to when Jesus was walking on this earth. He was God's gift to humanity. He was God himself, clothed in human flesh, walking among people, both fully God, fully human. And they never wrestled with the question, I want to pitch out to you. And it may seem odd, and it may seem like, well, why are you even going there? And I think by the time we get done, you'll, you'll see why. Are you a Christian, or are you a disciple? Are you a Christian, or are you a disciple? Now, I asked the question that way to create a little, you know, interest, a little frustration, maybe a, a little bit of lean and a little tension. But what I'm really interested in is helping you and me understand that in the first century, they never asked that question. They never wrestled with that concept at all, because here's what happened. In the first century, followers of Jesus were not called Christians. That came a little bit later. Followers of Jesus were always called disciples. Whenever you watched Jesus and he was surrounded by people, if you lived in the first century, the people that were surrounding him, they were up close and personal, having the conversations, the sidebar explanations, they weren't called Christians they were called disciples. And I think it's important for us to understand why that was and what happened historically because when I look at the word Christian today in our modern context here in America, 21st century, that word can, rather than bring great clarity, it can often bring confusion. So think about it for a second. When you hear the word Christian, because you're in church, you may have a particular understanding of what that word means. If, if I say the word um, comedian, you instantly get an idea of what a comedian is, and almost everybody in the room shares a similar definition with you of what the word comedian is. If I say school teacher, again, you get an image in your mind, and almost everybody in the room shares a similar idea of what that is. E even mom. We say the word mom or mother, we get a similar idea of what that is. But when it comes to the word Christian, it, it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. I, I have some relatives that I care deeply for, and when the word Christian comes up in conversation around them, they have a particular way of understanding that word that doesn't match what I understand about that word. They think about Christians as closed-minded, kind of harsh, uh, all about the rules, probably homophobic, certainly not interested in conversation and the sharing of ideas. Uh, they would use the word possibly gullible. That's what they think about when they think of Christian. Sometimes you hear the word Christian pop up in a political discussion. And that word Christian that comes up in a political discussion might mean a, a voting block of people with a particular set of values. Or it might refer to some historical context out of which our country did or didn't, depending on your thing, did or didn't, you know, uh, derive. For some people, Christian means I go to church. I have a certain set of beliefs. I was baptized or confirmed. I take communion. The word Christian, though, only shows up in our Bible three times. The preferred word in the Bible for a follower of Jesus, for somebody that had committed their lives to walking with, for, and in the shadow of Jesus was the word disciple. And I think that for the rest of our conversation today, I want to elevate the value of that word and the clarity that it brings. Many of you know that the New Testament was originally written in the language of uh, the Greek language, Koine Greek, common spoken language 
of the day. And in English and in the original Greek word, methetos, the word disciple means the same thing. There's no like crazy loop we're going to jump through to bring some interesting clarity. Here's what the word disciple means. It means a learner. It means a pupil, an apprentice, or a follower. All the people that hung around Jesus, that valued Jesus, that believed in Jesus were called disciples. They were learners. They were pupils. They were apprentices. They were followers. They had the idea that they were not the teacher, the fully informed one. They were the student in the seat, pencil in hand, notebook open, ready to take notes and receive what was delivered to them. The idea was that they were going to model after their teacher. The early followers of Jesus were all called disciples, and they all had the idea that they were a student sitting at the feet of a profound, life-changing teacher. And their idea was, hey, we're facing a situation, Jesus. What would you do? Because whatever you do, that's what we're going to do. Whatever you would think about this situation, that's what we want to think about this situation. Jesus, where would you go? Because wherever you would go, that's where we want to go because we're just following you. How would you handle, Jesus, relationships? How would you do relationships, Jesus? Because the way you do relationships, Jesus, that's the way we want to do relationships. How would you respond to that situation, that praise, that criticism, that encouraging word, that hurtful word? Because as you respond to those situations, Jesus, that's how we want to respond to those situations. And what would you do? So Jesus, give me some direction Give me clarity. Show me how to live my life. Oh, and if there's anything you want me to do, Jesus, I'm willing to do it. In fact, before I even know what the question is or the directive is, my answer right now, before I even know what you're going to say, is yes. The early followers of Jesus had none of the confusion that comes with the word Christian in modern America. The early followers of Jesus knew exactly what their role was. I am a learner. I'm a student. And he's the teacher. I'm second. He's first. He sets the way and models it. I follow in his shadow. As he walks and the dust is kicked up from his feet, that dust lands on me. I go where he goes. I talk over time, like he talks. Now, now it's very interesting that, that you see this in the New Testament because, because, again, the word Christian is only used three times. And when it's first introduced, it's not a pleasant idea. But before we get to the word Christian in the New Testament, let me just walk you through, for instance, in the book of Acts. I say it's a book, but it's really an ancient manuscript of a historical account, eyewitnesses who lived just after Jesus had left this earth. And they're watching the followers of Jesus, the disciples, and they're recording the things that happened to them as they walk now literally in the shadow of their teacher who has left. And the book of Acts records whether they got it and began to model the ways of their teacher or they missed it. So in Acts chapter 6, the words aren't on the screen, Acts chapter 6 verse 7, here's what it says. 
the word of God spread in that region and the number of disciples increased rapidly. Not the number of Christians, which might mean people who mentally assented to the idea. Not the number of people that were baptized, although a lot were baptized. Not the number of people that signed a membership role, although people were joining the group. The number of disciples, the people who were going to say, Jesus, you're the teacher. I'm the student. You're fully there. I have a long way to go. That number grew rapidly. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to become a disciple. This is about the Apostle Paul, who had been going around persecuting the followers of Jesus. But then he has a conversion experience where he wants to become a disciple. And he gives in to following Jesus, and he shows up at Jerusalem, and the other disciples don't believe that he's sincere. But he doesn't say, I want to be a Christian. He says, I want to follow, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, verse 36, even women are included. And since it's Mother's Day, I thought I'd throw this in. In Joppa, there was a disciple called, a disciple called Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. So I want to ask you again, no matter what your definition of Christian is, so let's just say it this way for clarity. Are you a disciple or are you a Christian? Now, if by Christian you mean disciple, good, you can be either one. But if Christian has any other definition for you other than disciple, we have some correction to do. Because that word in the New Testament Christian first shows up in this sentence. And the disciples were first called Christian in Antioch. Antioch was a city that had a lot of Greek-informed people, learned folks, and kind of a Roman culture with power as well, intelligence and power together. And there was this rambunctious group of people doing life differently called disciples of Jesus. And they heard that their teacher's name was Jesus the Christ. It got shortened to Jesus Christ. And so the followers of Jesus in Antioch were called Christians by the other people in Antioch, not as a sign of respect, but they said they're kind of like little Christs. Like they think they're somehow connected to the Messiah, to the anointed one. They're little Christs. And in one sense, they meant it in a pejorative way, but in one sense, it's an incredible compliment. But it wasn't meant to be a compliment. The disciples were, in fact, trying to be little Christ, a lot like their master. But when people thought about them, they didn't think about them in terms of this group of followers of Jesus called Christians. Sometimes it's very easy when you're around a lot of Christian stuff to go a long time with ever asking yourself a basic question. Am I just absorbing what's around me or am I, and here's the question for the followers of Jesus in the room, am I truly a disciple of the teacher? Am I a learner? Am I growing? Am I becoming more like the teacher? Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to enter into a life with our teacher where we get all kinds of amazing benefits. We get eternal life, which is incredible. It's so incredible, I can't even fathom it. I know it's 
It's incredible. The Bible tells me this. I can imagine it to some degree. It's incredible. We're called to eternal life. But we're also called to a rather particular life here. And it's not a life where we just hang around Christian stuff. It's a particular kind of life that we're called to. A life where we are learners, apprentices. We're being developed in the form of our teacher. Nobody's just called to enter a relationship with Jesus so they can have heaven. That is, at the very best, the beginning point. We're called to enter a relationship with Jesus so that we can get heaven and he can mold us and shape us here and now. So from time to time, around here, what we have done in this place is try to elevate the value that you haven't arrived yet. You're not the teacher. I'm not the teacher. That Jesus is the teacher, and we literally are in the seat of the pupil or the student. And so we try to wrap some language around that as a church. What, is, what would it mean if we took our role as a student seriously? We're learners, we're being developed, we're apprentices, we're pupils. What would it look like if we took that seriously? And so we made a couple of changes over the history of this church as we tried to drill down on the fact the word Christian can mean a lot of things, and it's a valid word, it's a good word, so long as the meaning is shared. But in order to bring clarity, what we would do, and here's just one change we made, we would call people in this room who've committed their lives to Jesus, we would call them followers of Jesus. Because when I asked people, as I was interacting when this church early, uh, in its early days started, I would ask people, are you a Christian? Everybody said yes. Everybody said yes. Everybody's a Christian. And of course, if everybody's a Christian, I won't necessarily say nobody is, but there's a problem. That doesn't match up with what the Bible says. If by Christian we mean we were born in a country that began largely on Judeo-Christian values, I guess in that sense we're all Christians. If by Christian we mean that our, we have a heritage in our family of church, and as a child our parents introduced us to some ideas, I guess in that sense we're Christian as opposed to Jewish, Muslim, whatever. But for the sake of the church God is building here in North Cincinnati, what we're interested in is, are you following Jesus? Okay, all right, so you're a Christian. Here's the question. Are you following Jesus with your life? Now that brought clarity. Because now it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. It doesn't even matter if you've defined Christian biblically, correctly, with clarity or not. Are you following Jesus? In this last season of your life, are you following him? Have you put on the student's identity and submitted to the wisdom of the, is that current? This seems to be what was going on in the New Testament. People from all walks of life, rich, poor, accepted, unaccepted, great acumen and skill in the marketplace and sometimes none at all showed up and they became students of their teacher. And it seems like in the book of Acts, this was the important idea. 
So much so that those early followers of Jesus began to encourage other followers of Jesus to truly become disciples. To literally walk with Jesus, even though he was gone. And so they, they participated in a few activities to make sure that while he wasn't physically present, the teacher could still teach. And so they read, for instance, the scriptures together. Not because that's what Christians do, but because that's how people who are trying to learn, develop, and grow in the shadow of their teacher. That's how they do it. They read the scripture together. They would pray together. They would talk to their teacher. They would start a dialogue. Not because that's the behavior Christians do, and if you're a Christian, you better do it, but because they saw themselves as people who have not fully yet arrived, and they still had a lot of room to grow as a follower, as a student of Jesus. They gave themselves to intentional teaching and preaching where the word of God was unpacked became a priority to sit and listen and receive. And then they got together, it's, the Bible says it this way, in synagogues and in houses daily. They broke bread together, they ate together, and over those meals they would have conversations about the deeper things, and they would unpack it together, and they would spur one another on. It wasn't because there was a set of behaviors you must do if you're a Christian. It's because internally they were motivated by a desire to grow as a disciple. And that shift changes everything. That mentality, how you see yourself, changes everything. Have you arrived? If you think you have, look at your spouse. They're shaking their head no. Look at your kids. They're telling you, nope. You haven't arrived. None of us have. We're all students if we're following Jesus. We're all students. And there's some behaviors we can do to follow him better, to understand him more clearly, to receive his teachings with greater receptivity. And I've named a few of them. There's the engagement of the scriptures. There's listening to teaching and preaching. Around here, we believe that teaching is a powerful catalyst for life change. This Friday, we had about 100 people in this room uh, from the community and another 50 or so from our local congregation here at an event called LeaderCast. And it wasn't explicitly Christian, but several of the speakers were. And I watched people from all walks of life lean down and put on the student's hat. And they took notes, and they were having aha moments. And I would engage them in the hallway, and they were saying, here's what I'm learning. I'm going to take this back. That's what we do in here. We open God's Word together, and we... We submit ourselves to its teaching. We say, God, whatever you have for me today, that, that's what I want to experience. I, I'm a pastor. I, I do a lot of speaking. And it's really interesting when I go hear other people speak. We're very blessed in this church because Pastor Andy, who shares this stage, and we'll be sharing it a lot over the next several years, is a, an accomplished teacher. But sometimes I'll sit in a room and I'm sitting under somebody who I wouldn't say has the best skill or acumen. And I found myself as a person who does what they do often, sitting in the seat of the critic, sitting in the seat of the evaluator, as opposed to sitting as a student ready to receive what they have. So a few years ago, my wife and I made a commitment. Whenever we go to church, we're going to do our best to fully engage whatever the minister has to say. You know, we're going to come with open hearts, open minds, ready to receive. 
And that discipline has paid off well for us. But sometimes it's put me in some awkward places. A few weeks ago, I was at another church. I won't name them. They're probably watching by video. Hello. Um, and I was in church, and I was sitting. I was a first-time guest. I'm sitting at the end of the aisle because that's what a first-time guest does. They find the aisle. So I'm sitting in the end of the aisle, and the pastor gets up, and he says, if you're sitting on the end of the aisle, stand up. I looked at my wife, and I said, oh, God, help us. Help me, help me, help me. I stood up. He says, all of you that are standing in the aisle, you today are my praise captains. I'm looking for the exits. He said, everybody else in the row, look down. Look at your praise captain at the end of the aisle. Well, I'm preaching today. Praise captains, you're going to help me preach. You're going to lead the rest of the folks in praise. And if the praise captain doesn't do a good enough job, any one of you in the rest of the row have my authority to go over and tell the praise captain, I want your seat. Now the pressure's on, friends. <laughs> I am struggling. And so at various points in his 40-minute sermon, he would say, praise captains, where are you? Stand up. Give the Lord some praise. Now, that's not my favorite way of doing church. And I struggled. Now, he's saying great stuff. In fact, Jill and I left, and we unpacked a lot of what he had. There was like some stuff from God for us, for our family, and for our church. But all the way through it, I struggled. It's real easy when you're around Christian stuff to forget that we're students and instead believe that our job is to critique, evaluate, assess, when really disciples are there to learn. The church goes better when we come ready to receive. Now, we have to filter it. My personality may not match yours. I may say something you don't like. All, that's legit, all that discussion can happen. But church just goes better when we come ready to receive. Prayer just goes better when we come honestly to prayer. And we lift up our thoughts and concerns through the filter of being transparent with God. And if you're praying with others, transparent in community. Because if you've been around church for any length of time at all, you know that we Christians can do a pretty good job of snowballing one another with our prayers. I've been doing it a long enough time. I can pray in such a way that I dig down deep and I bear my heart and soul before God in honest conversation, or I can stay right here and never really go there. So around here, we started talking about followers of Jesus. We started really valuing coming to a teaching with a learner's cap on. We started really valuing honesty in prayer. That's why, for instance, when you walked through the front doors today of the, of the parking lot, or maybe in the back you didn't see it, that's why we want everybody to walk near that sign out there that says real love now. That first word real for us is just a big deal. It's the idea that you can come and be authentic. You can admit what disciples already know. I haven't arrived. I'm in process. I'm growing. Yeah, it doesn't mean I started, I'm not on necessarily step one, but I have a long way to go. And you can be honest and transparent about that. What if we had a room? What if we had a community? What if you had a group of friends around you that all believed they still had a lot to learn and grow from? And it wasn't just a statement, yeah, I got a lot of, but they were identifying, here's where I need to grow. Here's some things God's doing about, what if we were active followers of Jesus doing life together? What if real people, with real problems could encounter a real God in a thing we call real worship. What if 
in real love now? What if we could love others right where they are, knowing that it's okay that they haven't arrived because they are in process too, just like I am? And maybe I'm a little further here. Maybe I'm a little bit behind over here. But we're doing that thing together. And what if, what if we didn't wait for somebody to get it all together, but we said, no matter where you are, you can be a part of us right now. You can actually serve this community with us right now. So that's what we mean by, by real love now. It's not just a slogan that somebody can walk into an experience warm and welcoming environment, although that's true. That's what we hope. That's level one. Level two is, is we can be real and authentic, love people who aren't perfect, and be loved even when we're not perfect, and we can start right now engaging what God has for our lives in this community. But there's one tool above all the others that I want to take you to in just a moment. But first, I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 12 where one of the biblical writers is trying to unpack this idea. How do we be better disciples? How do we grab hold of that title of who we are and embrace it fully? How do we get great clarity on our role as followers of Jesus? So in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of that letter to the group of Christians who were also Hebrew in origin says these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, in Hebrews chapter 11, the earlier division, he described a lot of the heroes that they had known about. Moses, David, Joshua, Samson. He he described a lot of women, uh, Rahab and and Deborah, and and the ways that God had moved. He said, these people have all gone before us. They kind of serve as witnesses to us. People who were following God, imperfect people that God used, and they stayed with him. And so the writer says, since we have all these people who've gone on before us, Here's where it begins. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin in our lives that so easily entangles. And this is where we pick up our language. And let us run with perseverance, with perseverance the race marked out for us. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. I like that word perfect. We're going to come back to that. And then it says, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews is trying to say, look, we have a race in front of us. We have a distance to go. So we set our eyes on Jesus and there's going to be some challenges. Just like our leader faced. He endured the cross. He bore its shame. It's interesting to me. When I, was, when I read this passage, and I'm kind of clicking through the thought process, and I get to he endures the cross, bearing its shame, it seems to me that the writer should have said he endures the cross, kind of bearing its pain. Can you imagine how painful the cross was? How painful it was? Nails through the hands, through the feet, whips, you know, on the back, piercing the side. But the writer here focuses on another aspect of that, the shame aspect. That Jesus endured shame for us. It was incredibly embarrassing. Hung naked. We don't see that on the pictures very often, thank God, but that's really what it was like. He hung naked. And, and, and beyond that, in, in a spiritual realm, he's the God of heaven come down in flesh and he's abused by the very people he created when he has great authority and could call down angels at any moment. 
He endures that kind of embarrassment and humiliation. There's a shame, though, that exists often in the body of Christ that comes because we haven't grappled adequately with what does it mean to be a disciple. It's the shame of, of what I, I don't know what else to call it other than perfectionism. I haven't arrived. I'm not there yet. This desire that somehow I have to have it all together. And if I don't, you can't know it. I have to hide it from you. Sometimes I have to hide it from myself. You see Christians engage this a couple of different ways. Sometimes they beat themselves up all the time for not having arrived yet. There's some sin that keeps entangling them that the writer talked about. And they live in a constant state of defeat. Or others, everybody else can see their sin, but they seem to be oblivious to it. And they don't seem to be grappling with the reality of their distance between them and their teacher at all. And often in Christianity, there's an inherent shame that keeps us hidden and unconnected. And that's why when you understand what a disciple is, it allows you to embrace right where you are, to be real about your relationships and what's going on in your life, to take responsibility for those things that are yours without feeling overwhelmed by the sense of, will they like me if they know the real me? It allows you to be honest because as a disciple, it implies that you're not fully there. And where is there anyway? That you've managed all of your sin? Is that what we're trying to do? Or is there a better, clearer image that we're shooting for? I think the author here tells us we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the perfect one. And we move ourselves to be like him. The way he loved. The way he engaged people. The way he did relationships. It makes it easier once I identify myself as a not yet fully arrived person. And I don't just assent to the fact that I'm not perfect. I'm willing to work on the parts of me that need to be more made in the image of Jesus. That's what the early followers of Jesus did. They blundered all the way through it, and God used all of that because they understood something, that being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean we keep it all together. It means we hold to and we point to a God that keeps it all together. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean we keep it all together. It means we hold to and we point to a God who keeps it all together. That allows me then to be honest with where I am. I can say... Still a student. Still a student. Yep, sometimes the words coming out of my mouth do not reflect the attitude, teaching, and calling of my teacher. I'm here. That's me for real. There are dynamics in my marriage where I'm not fully loving. I do not represent adequately the things my teacher. And I don't have to lie about the gap. I don't have to pretend about the gap. I can, without shame, walk in the gap because that's actually my calling. Because I'm a disciple. I haven't arrived. Again, in Hebrews chapter 3, just go back a few pages. Here's what it says. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. The idea of walking with, not turning away, walking with. And then he says, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end, 
As it has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Remember, he's writing to Hebrews who have a history of the children of Israel who would hear God and then they would harden their hearts and not follow. And he's drawing from that history saying, for those of us who are disciples today, let's keep our hearts soft. Let's always walk with him. When should you walk with him? Today. Today is the day we should do that. And so it speaks to this active following of him. It's incredibly beautiful when I see an older person who hasn't been following Jesus commit their lives to Christ and they lean in and there's a beauty that comes over their life. And it's incredibly painful for me as a pastor to watch somebody who's been walking with Jesus for a while, but there's just a hardness that has set in. And that idea that today is the day I follow, today is the day I soften my heart, today is the day I continue to be a student, that seems to be lost in them. And so they have all this history and all this heritage under the banner of Christianity, I'm not here to judge. I'm just, I'm asking a question. Are they adequately following him? Are they being a disciple? So we wanted to call each other followers of Jesus. You can call us Christians. It's a valid term. I'm not asking you to go out and call each other disciples. That would get odd. Are you a Christian? No, I'm a disciple. That just gets kind of odd. But you know what, if somebody were to ask you if you're a Christian today in the marketplace, some of you would struggle with that because here's what I would say. Yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those. Wouldn't you feel like you would need to say that a bit? Yes, I'm a Christian. I'm just not what, what do you, what do you mean by Christian? Oh yeah, okay, I'm that. So here's the thing. We are called to come as we are, but we're also asked to not stay that way. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. This is the tension we do in here. Come as you are, but let's push each other on. When should we push each other on? Today. Not tomorrow. Not just relying on what happened yesterday. It's today. Because we believe that God will transform all the parts of our lives that we give to him. I like to think about disciples this way. That they are spiritually fit. F-I-T. They're faithful. What do I mean by faithful? Here's a simple clarifying question. Are there things God's asked you to do that you're doing? You're faithful. You're faithful. God, what would you have me do? You get an impression, you get a leading, and you start moving forward. You're faithful. Not not perfect, faithful. You're in motion. You're actively walking. You're faithful. You know of a sin that the writer of Hebrews talks about in your life? It's on your radar. You're praying about it. God, I'm struggling again with those words. God, I'm struggling with that attitude. You know the unforgiveness. You're faithful to the thing that God has in front of you. You're faithful. Not perfect. Faithful. Not shame-filled. Purposeful. Faithful. Then the, the second thing I would say is that they're intentional. I'm very busy. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy. And I mean that legitimately. I'm not trying to make you think that I'm important because I'm busy. I just have a lot on my plate. I bet you do too. So what a disciple does is they get intentional about carving out some time to do the important stuff. I don't know about you, but my calendar doesn't value the things I value. My calendar gets populated with all kinds of things. Some are very important, some aren't important at all. And my calendar is an evil, brutal taskmaster. 
I, as a disciple, have to get intentional with what I'm going to do. If I'm not intentional, the important stuff doesn't get my attention. And so disciples say, God, if you put it on my heart, if you put it in my life, I'm going to deal with it. When am I going to deal with it? Today. Not tomorrow. I'm not relying on what I did last year, 20 years ago. I'm not relying on the prayers my grandma prayed. Me and you, Jesus. I'm a, I'm a disciple, not just mom and dad, and me. And I'm going to make some time to do that, to do what you've called me to do. I'm going to get in your word a bit. I'm going to get in prayer a bit. I'm going to get in community a bit. I'm going to serve in the body of Christ using the gifts you've blessed me with. I'm going to get intentional. Faithful, intentional, and the last one, teachable. Teachable. This really gets to the heart of what I'm talking about all day. Friends, how teachable are you? How teachable are you? I mean, are you learning? I don't mean just learning facts. It's amazing how mature a person can be in Christ who doesn't know a lot of the Bible. I mean, you can, within just a few years of following Jesus, a few months, a few hours, you can learn some basic stuff that for the rest of your life you're working out like love each other as I have loved you. Uh, It's not complicated to understand. It doesn't take years to get it. But man, doesn't it take years to live that out? But a teachable person doesn't show any interest in that. Are you teachable? Because disciples are teachable. Disciples are intentional about becoming the student. Disciples are faithful to what's been delivered to them. I don't know about Christians. Christians may or, not, may, or may not be. I don't, it would all depend on how you define that word. But the clarity that the word disciple brings is that we do not have the option but yet we're not motivated by fear. We eagerly come to the place of saying, speak, Lord, I'm listening. Before I know the question, the answer is yes. You want me to go? Don't even know Before you even tell me where to go, I'm going. I'll struggle with it. You know I'll fall. But I'm going. And I'm not going to wait. I'm going to do it today. The truth is, is you and I are called to change, to grow. And we know that often on the front end of our spiritual journeys. But there's something about being around Christianity, whatever that word means, that can sometimes inoculate us at the urgency with which we truly are learners. So let me me just make something clear to you. God is not interested in your perfection. He's interested in a relationship with you where you become more like him. He's not trying to just deal with your sin. It's not about sin management. It's about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfect one. While we work with him, he works in us. We're faithful, intentional, and teachable. And so we like to say it this way sometimes. God is more concerned with your next step than he is your misstep. So let me just speak to a couple of groups of people here for just the last couple moments. Maybe you came here today and you're not even sure you're a follower of Jesus. And that word Christian has bothered you. You watch us on the media and it just bothers you. I hope that today you get greater clarity on at least what we aspire to. I'm not responsible for everybody that claims the name Christian. I don't want to be responsible for that. There's some people I'm incredibly embarrassed about and I have deep questions about whether or not even that banner fits them, but all right. I'm responsible for being a disciple and the call to you 
is that you can have a relationship with Jesus and he'd like to lead you. And you can truly be a disciple too, as imperfect as you might be because you're looking at one who's very imperfect. I have my eyes though on the one who is. And I'm asking you, if you aren't yet followed, Jesus, turn your eyes to the one that is and see if he can't speak and lead, teach you. Let me, let me talk to people who've been walking with Jesus for a long time. I read the words in Hebrews and they convict me. Today is the day you're to be growing. Today is the day you're supposed to be in the word of God. Today is the day you're supposed to be praying. This is your call. It's not something you accomplished and we're done with it. Today is the day you're supposed to be in community, talking with people about the word of God and the truths of God and praying with people about you in honest, transparent relationship. And it could be that you're stuck as a disciple because you have left those things that put you in a place to be teachable. That's what Hebrews writer says, today give yourself to these things. Today lay off the sin. Today focus your eyes on Jesus. And it's real easy when we've been doing it for a few decades to forget that. So I call you back today to be a disciple You're a Christian. Awesome. Be a disciple. The biggest tool we use around here to do that is the thing called next steps. It's a contrived, artificial way to simply move forward in next steps of growth for us. So every week, I prayerfully, or Pastor Andy prayerfully works through some suggestions. We want to give everybody in the room the chance to take a step. We call it a bold step because if you're stuck, a small step is a bold step. If you're not following Jesus, that next step could be a big step. Sometimes it's a prayer. Sometimes it's a scripture. Sometimes it's an action. Sometimes it relates to community. Sometimes it's about the value of this. It's just a tool to make sure that we are active disciples. Because for us, it wasn't good enough for people to drive by and see a big bright green sign and say, oh, that place is full of Christians. We wanted them as they encountered us, to say, I don't know all that's going on, but whatever's going on in their lives, I want some of that. I don't even know if I believe what they believe, but I want to hire people from that place because they are teachable, approachable. They love like nobody else. They work with excellence. There's, There's something going on in their lives. I love the way they do marriage in that place. I love the way they do parenting in that place. I love the way they care for single people and and, and they come together in community in that place. It doesn't happen unless today and tomorrow and the next day we are actively growing as followers of Jesus. You can go to church a long time and not grow. So I want to challenge you every time you're here to take your next bold step. I'll suggest a few, but you need to figure out what God's calling you to do. So with that said, let's grab out our connect cards and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Here it is, next step A. Today, I'm asking Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. He's made himself available to you You can grab hold of him, not because you have achieved or arrived, but because by his favor and love towards you, we call it grace. You can receive what he's offered. The Bible says you do it this way. God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I accept what you've done. 
through Jesus, his death and resurrection, to cover my sin and secure a relationship with you. We say it sometimes this way, make Jesus your forgiver and your leader, your Savior and Lord. I'd ask you to take your pen, check next step A, put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end of the service, and we'll communicate with you about it. You're not joining our church, you're not signing up to give anything, I just want to tell you about what it means, biblically speaking, to be a follower of Jesus. And in a minute, I'm going to pray. You can use my words, you can use your own, and we're going to look up to God and say, God, forgive me. I want to follow you, give you my life, all of it, all of me to all that you have for me. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. Last week, we had nine people get baptized. One scheduled, nine people stepped up and said, I'm going to follow the example of the Lord in baptism. It was a great celebration. If you haven't been baptized, check that. A member of our team will be in communication with you. Put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by. Here's next step C. It's a simple one-sentence prayer that I'm going to pray every day this week. God, today, soften my heart and make me receptive to you. I'm teachable. I'm available. I'll make some time. I'll be faithful to what you do. God, today, soften my heart and make me receptive to you. I threw this out last week, and so many of you responded to Next Step D. We're going to throw it out again. Thank you for this. It's been incredible. We're working through the data. Here's what it says. I'm willing to serve six out of the 24 services this summer. So in June, July, and August, there's 24 service times, 13 weeks, two a day. We're asking you to help some of our team be able to take breaks, vacations. And if you could check the box, we'll communicate with you along your schedule to get you signed up for six serving services. So six out of 26, 13 times two. And kids are first impressions. You're not signing up for life. It literally is just six. Check that, and you can be a part of helping make this church happen. And here's next step B. I'm really excited about this. Sign me up for Party in the Park. We're bringing blank people from our house to the party. Everybody in this church is invited to the Party in the Park at the end of this month. You can hear another announcement about it. Everybody's invited. We just want to get together, get to know each other. And you can right now, in one step, take Next Step E, put a number. In my house, there's six. We'll put a six at Next Step E. And then you'll get an email this week with other details about the party in the park. Let's pray about these things right now. Father, I want to thank you. God, I present myself and I represent these people in this room, my brothers and sisters. And we declare, that, Lord, we are following you. We are following you. We're disciples. We're We're faithful. We're intentional. We're teachable. And God, where we're not following, where we're not faithful, where we're not intentional, where we're not teachable, would you mold us? Would you shape us? Would you soften our hearts today? God, for the people that are just now coming to you, for those of us that have been following for a couple decades, make our hearts soft and fully open to all that you have for us. Help us to take our next bold step. And I pray for those that are declaring right now, Jesus, be my Savior and Lord. Wash away my sin. I receive what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection to secure my relationship with God. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen.